Okay. Uh, the heading of Psalm 55 says, For the choir director on stringed instruments, a mascal of David. Now, you notice that is the same way the heading to Psalm 54 started. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a mascal of David. But Psalm 54 added some specific historical circumstances that David was experiencing that is absent in Psalm 55. All Psalms 52 to 55 have had that heading of Maskell of David. Now, as far as the text, let's read the text. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless, and in my, I am restless in my complaint, and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling comes upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I, will, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Salah. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. In verse 9, Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around her upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend, who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. For evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning, and at noon, I will complain and murmur, and He will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle, for they are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old, Silah, with whom there is no change, and who do not fear God. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was more. His words were softer than oil, yet they are drawn swords. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you.
In the first three verses, he calls upon God to hear this prayer in the midst of despair. In verses 1 and the first part of verse 2, he uses four imperatives. Begging God to give ear, begging God not to hide himself, begging God to give heed and to answer him. And I'm looking at the New American Standard Bible. But he's begging God to hear this plea and he then begins to describe his distress in the latter part of verse 2 and then in verse 3. So often in the Psalms you see requests and cries for God to hear our prayer. For God to hear our request. And you see that here. Give ear to my prayer and do not hide Yourself. Do not hide yourself. Now, let's look at that particular term here in 55.1. Do not hide yourself. That term is not, it, it's one word, it's not used frequently uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, hide yourself. But it is used three times in Deuteronomy 22. Look at Deuteronomy 22. And I want you to just look at the context. See how we can apply this to what is prayed in Psalm 55 verse 1. In verse 1, Deuteronomy 22. You shall not see your countryman's ox or sheep strain and pay no attention. Now, the phrase translated Pay no attention is hide yourself. You shall not hide yourself. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. If your countryman is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you will bring it home to your house. It shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it, and then you shall restore it to him. Thus you shall do with his donkey, and you shall do the same with his garment, and you shall do likewise with anything lost by your countrymen, which he has lost, and you have not found, you were not allowed to neglect them. Now, that ending, not allowed to neglect them, that is our word in question. We've seen the word used in Deuteronomy 22 verse 1. We see it used in verse 3. And in verse 4, you shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox down on the way and pay no attention to them. That's our word. You shall certainly help him, uh, help him to raise them up. So a couple of times, this is instructing us that we cannot <clears throat> not pay, we cannot pay no attention to the enemy's ox or to the enemy's donkey under a burden or going astray. Another time it's translated not allowed to neglect them. Let me show you one other time how where it's used and then, then I'm going to ask your thoughts on this. Isaiah 58 verse 7. Isaiah 58 and verse 7. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself 
from your own flesh. Okay, what conclusions can you draw from that? I, I say, what conclusions can you draw from the use of that word in those passages? You have an obligation that you can't ignore. Uh, okay. That's what I'm thinking about those statements. Okay. Okay. I was just going to say, you need to be engaged in what you see, what's going on around you. Okay. Not pretend like you don't see it. Hey, Mary? And if God requires us to do that with animals, how much more will he yes. hide from man? Yes. Your, your explana- the explanations of the passage are right. And this is instruction of God to man. You can't just neglect it. You can't just let them go and pay no attention to it. But if this is God's instruction to man, how much more will God practice this? If God is telling man, don't neglect your enemy, your 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 uh, the person's ox or donkey in his circumstance. How much more is God going to respond to that? And so he is pleading with God to do what God tells Israelites not to do. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself. Don't hide yourself from my supplication. You ask that of us, and we're asking that of you. Give heed to me and answer me, he says. Then as he explains his distress, he says, I am restless in my complaint. I am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, the pressure of the wicked. They bring down trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. So here is his circumstance. He experiences, uh, he experiences the opposition of an enemy in verse, in verse 3. Sometimes his enemies in this psalm are spoken of in singular. Sometimes they are spoken of in plural. Here he speaks of it in a singular fashion. Because of the voice of the enemy, the pressure of the wicked. But he finds himself in a period of distress and he is crying out to God to please hear and not to hide himself from him in the midst of his crisis. And his physical, his, the opposition he is facing leads to personal turmoil. He is personally upset. In verse, in verse 4, my heart is in anguish within me. And the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling comes upon me. And horror has overwhelmed me. Look at all of these terms that he uses to describe his emotional distress. Anguish, the terrors of death, fear and trembling. All these things are overwhelming him. And in the midst of it all, he just wishes that he could get away. There were 
some commercials years ago that maybe not that long ago, I don't remember, but a person might say something embarrassing in a situation and the question was, do you want to just get away? And we've all known the feeling, whether it be of a minor embarrassment or whether it be a big problem that we wish we could escape. And here you see that in the Psalms. In verse 6, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Now, a dove in the Song of Solomon is used as a picture. Your eyes are like doves. They're pictures of love. That's not the picture here. The picture here is of a bird that could flee to the cliffs, maybe in Palestine fleeing to the cliffs around the Dead Sea and be inaccessible to hunters. And that is his view in this particular psalm. He wishes that he had wings like a dove where he would fly away and be at rest. The words at rest could be translated literally to dwell. This is the word you put a... Well, it's the root word for the word tabernacle. But I would fly away and be at rest. I would wander away and I would lodge in the wilderness. Often the wilderness is viewed as a place of danger and the city is a place of escape. Do you remember Jeremiah 35? Do you remember that group of people who wouldn't drink wine? you remember what their names were? Rechabites, the Rechabites, they wouldn't drink wine and they didn't dwell generally in a city, but they were coming inside the city because the Babylonians were attacking from the outside. So sometimes in times of difficulty, people fled from the wilderness to cities. But here, because the difficulty is in cities, which he will describe in verses 9-11, through he wants to flee to the wilderness. He wants to be where no one else is. And in verse 8, I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Here he describes his difficulties as a storm and he needs a place of refuge from the storm. But God himself is that place of refuge, isn't he? Listen to Isaiah, Isaiah 25 and verse 4. You have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. We want a refuge from the storm and a shade from the heat. The psalmist is praying for that, but in praying to that, he is coming as close as he can to that. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Now, let me show you someone else who had the same kind of feelings. Turn to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9. 
Jeremiah 9. Now, it is difficult at points in this passage to tell who is speaking. Is God speaking? Or is Jeremiah speaking? But I lean to the fact that this is Jeremiah picking up in verse 1 of Jeremiah 9. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place that I might leave my people and go from them for all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like bows, like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. But I think this is Jeremiah who wants a wayfarer's lodging place, who wants to go into the desert in order to escape his sinful people. And the psalmist David is seeking the same thing. He's wanting to get away from the crowds and wish that he could just flee and disappear from it all. Yes? Do we have any idea what the time frame of this no, we, we really don't accept to just look at the headings in surrounding psalms. And I think it is a good possibility with the fact that he mentions in chapter uh, Psalm, Psalm uh, 54, he mentions the encounter with the people of Ziph, which is recorded in 1 Samuel 23 and 1 Samuel 26. In chapter 56, he mentions the Philistines seizing him at Gath in 1 Samuel chapter 21. But, but all of these seem to be connected with his days with Saul. And so I think if we were going to try to be specific, that that would be as good of a guess as any. But, but I don't, we can't be absolutely certain, but I think that is as good of a possibility. And I would suggest in a way when David goes to the Philistines for a year and four months in 1 Samuel chapter 27, that in a sense he's doing this. In a sense, he is fleeing into the wilderness. It's not so much that he wants to be around the Philistines, but he knows Saul is not going to trouble him there. Can you think of somebody else in the Bible that may have acted in a way like this when he says, I would that I could make wings like a dove and fly away and be at rest. Who is someone who departed his people in a similar way? There may be more than one other, but I'm thinking particularly of one other. Job? Are you thinking about Job? Well, he really doesn't run anywhere. I, I, I yeah. don't doubt he felt like it. I'm thinking particularly of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 when Jezebel says, you're going to be killed like one of them tomorrow. He got up and fled. And ultimately he ends up at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. 
By the way, that's the last time that Mount Sinai is mentioned in the Bible where we see somebody acting or, or being there. And it's alluded to in the New Testament mentioning what happened in the Old Testament. But that's the last time historically that we see someone there. And Elijah fled there in days of difficulty. And God asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For Israel has torn down your altars and killed your prophets, and I alone am left. And they seek to take away my life. But I want to tell you, my point right now is not so much to criticize Elijah or Jeremiah or David, because all of us at some point have felt like this because of some difficulty, maybe small and maybe great. We have felt like that. But in verse 9, Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. Now in verse 11, do any of you have a different word for streets? The last word of the New American Standard. What do you have, Vicky? Marketplaces. Marketplaces may be significant. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But as David sees all the sin and evil and destruction in the city... This is why he wants to flee to the wilderness. But he sees all of this wickedness in the city, and it is perpetual. Notice in the first of verse eight, or excuse me, the first first of verse ten, day and night they go around upon her walls. The walls are often what defended the city. That's the reason that in times of attack, people came inside a city because they wanted to be inside the walls of the city to be protected, to be defended. But here these walls are not a source of protection, but they are the source of these people who surround the city, who prowl around the city looking to do great destruction. And the corruption surrounds him. It is from the walls of the city which they go around and surround at night to the marketplaces in verse 11 which were often the places where dishonesty was engaged in in order to buy and sell and they made differing weights and differing measures. But he says, God, now this is an easy question. He says, God, confuse them, confound them and divide their tongues. What event could that remind you of? Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 where God confuses them and confounds their language. The word confuse in the New American Standard, the first word of the sentence, it could be translated swallow. It could be translated swallow. This is the word used for the great fish that swallowed Jonah in Jonah 1 and verse 17. But it is a prayer, it is an imprecatory prayer, it is a cursing prayer, it is a prayer for judgment. O Lord, swallow them up 
and divide their tongues. In Genesis 11, God dividing their tongues helped them from cooperating in their evil designs of self-promotion. And God and David is hoping that it has the same effect here. Divide their tongues because the violence and strife that so fills the city, that fills the city perpetually, that fills the outside to the inside of the city that's right there in its midst, all of this must be stopped. And he's asking God to do this. Um, by the way, this particular word which is translated um, surround uh, in verse in verse um, 10 they surround her walls it is sometimes used for talking about um, going around the city like a dog in Psalm in Psalm uh, 59 if you look at Psalm 59 verse 6 they return at evening they howl like a dog they go around the city verse 14 says the same thing they return at evening they howl like a dog they go around the city and just as these people go around the city as these as these wild dogs seek to ravage the people that same word for surround uh, is used in Psalm 55 and verse 10 they go around her walls any questions, any thoughts that you have right there? Anything? Okay, let's look at verses 12 through um, 14, his description of the enemy. Or here it is, it is not somebody he would have thought was an enemy. It's not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. By the way, it's not the same word for hide used of God in verse 1. But still, he's begging God not to be hidden. But he knows he could hide himself from some enemies verse 13 but as it it is you a, a man my equal my companion my familiar friend we had sweet fellowship together and walked in the house of God in the throng he knows what it's like to experience the violence of the enemy Verse 3 had mentioned an enemy. But more painful to him, it seems, is the betrayal of a friend. Of one that he viewed as an ally. It's not an enemy who reproaches me. And it, it's not one who hates me. It is someone my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. Now, in verse 13, my familiar friend, it uses and I'm looking again at the New American Standard translation, my familiar friend, but it uses a form 
of the word yada to uh, which could mean he knows or uh, I know. But, but the, the meaning of the verb is know. It is used, for example, when the Bible says Adam knew Eve. It is used for Cain knowing his wife and she conceived. It is not usually used with a sexual idea, but it is used in the most intimate type of knowledge. This is one who has been his close friend, his intimate friend, who has committed this act of betrayal. Now, maybe in the working world, that's common. But this wasn't just the working world. They shared spiritual things as well. In verse 14, we had sweet fellowship together and walked to the house of God in a throng. We, we were worshiping together. And we praised the same God together. And yet, he feels betrayal. And I'm sure some of you already recognize we're going to come back to that at the end. But he prays judgment on them. By the way, I want you to notice something. Remember we stated that the use of the personal pronoun in Hebrew uh, is generally rare. Because the person that is the subject or the object of a verb is indicated by the ending of the word. Verse 13 uses the personal pronoun you. It is like he is speaking directly to this evil man at this point. But you, but is you a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend? But in verse 15, he says, Let death come deceitfully upon them. Who is the them? Well, it's probably everybody mentioned this point. It's probably this friend and probably those who did not pose as friends at all, but who were his enemies. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. Let them go down alive to Sheol. In verse 15, now John, you were a fearless co-teacher in um, the book of Numbers. And who do we see going down alive into Sheol in that book? Sounds like Korah and his companions. Okay, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in Numbers 16, verses 30 through 33. So there are a couple of allusions to the Old Testament in this psalm. In verse 9, confuse your language, like the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And here... Let them go down alive 
to Sheol. Moses said in that particular case, if these men die the death of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if something strange happens and the earth opens up and swallows them alive, then you will know the Lord has sent me. No sooner has he finished saying that than the earth opens up and swallows them alive and they go down alive into Sheol. The next day the people come to him and says, Moses, you and Aaron have killed the people of the Lord. How much clearer could it be that this is from God? And you also find that kind of phrase in the when the wicked people are plotting against the innocent in Proverbs 1 in verse 12. The Bible says in Proverbs 1 in verse 12, let us kill them, let us swallow them alive like Sheol. So same kind of language. But let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their midst. Now, any, any comment right there, question right there? Well, you mentioned verse 9, that word confused could also mean swallow, so you could have an allusion there to number 16. Okay, that, that's a good point. Yes, that could also tie in as well. And the earth uh, opened and swallowed them. I believe that word is used in that context. And somebody correlated this uh, this betrayal, you know, my, my equal, my companion, uh, to... Jehu coming to Joram and Joram asks you know is it peace and he announces no peace and and Joram calls out to Ahaziah treachery yes treachery away it's kind of the same thing here you know it's this is not an enemy this is a close companion it's treachery yes his military captain there second kings nine good point Gary I was just thinking with all of his being in the city and seeing all of this on that level, it just fits with the time frame that you mentioned. Because it was, I was thinking, if he was a king, it seems like he would be up in his palace and he wouldn't be down noticing this stuff with in and among the people every day. Yeah. So before he was a king, he would be down down with the people and noticing this. And as a younger man, his his heart was pure, if you will. Mm-hmm. And when, you, and when you are a ruler, as Israel had a ruler at this time, who was so preoccupied with destroying David, he doesn't have time to worry about crime in the city. You don't have time to worry about those kinds of things because you're too busy trying to destroy your enemy. And I, and I think that that, you know, it does fit there. Now, I don't know if we should have divided this up a little differently, but let's look at this step by step. He said, as for me, I shall call upon God. Um, Now again, this uses the personal pronoun I. So that is especially emphasized. He sees the city is full of violence. The city is full of strife. His familiar friend has betrayed him. In the midst of it, all we can control is ourself. As for me, I shall call upon God. Now one of the things that makes that more significant is throughout this section, we have seen the opposite of that. Look at Psalm 53. Psalm 53 verse 4. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God. They have not called upon God. But here in Psalm 55, 16, I will call upon God. 
I'll call upon God and He will save me. He sees that God is the only source of salvation. One of the things these Psalms do as they relate many different experiences, many different experiences, some of joy, some of defeat, some of confusion and disorientation, but they recognize that the Lord is the only one who can rescue and the only one who can save. As for me, I shall call upon the Lord and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur and he will hear my voice. Now, later in Psalm 119, Psalm 119 and verse um, 164, seven times a day I praise you Because of your righteous ordinances. Psalm 119, verse 164. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ornaments. But another case in the Bible, we read of a person who continued praying and giving thanks before his God. Uh, And it says that uh, with his windows open, he continued on his knees three times times a day. Who was that? Daniel. Daniel 6 and verse 10. Now I don't think it's specifying it has to be three times or seven times. But just as the confusion and the violence within the city was perpetual day and night Psalm 55 verse 10. So our looking to God is perpetual. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur. It's interesting Daniel was giving thanks. He was complaining and murmuring but I'm not saying this to criticize. There will be moments of our life of heaviness where we will turn to God in the midst of that. And if anyone is is um, Happy, let him sing praises. Uh, I'm quoting, trying to quote James 5, verse 13. I can't remember how it goes. Um, if anyone is sad, let him pray. If anyone is happy, let him sing songs. Uh, what does it say, Christy? Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Okay, there it is. James 5, just as I, just as I quoted it. Okay? Uh, yes. The King James just says that he, w- he was not murmuring and, and such, but he would just pray morning, oh. noon, and evening. Uh-huh. That uh, reminds you of a song? Yes. A m- morning, noon, and evening, uh-huh. unto thee I'll pray. Is that, that's the song that, you're talking yeah, about? that must be where that comes from. Yes, yes, I think so. I think so. You got to admit, though, Tommy, it would be pretty disconcerting considering these are supposed to be God's people that are living and acting this way. Oh yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, when you're dwelling in the midst of a city that's supposed to be committed to God, and uh, to find them, absolutely, it's it's disconcerting. What does he view God as doing? He views God in verse sixteen as saving. In verse 18, as redeeming. And here he mentions, they are many 
who strive with me in verse 18. But uh, God is the one who can save. God is the one who can redeem. God is the one who reigns in verse uh, 19. Even the one who sits enthroned from of old. Now, it's a little difficult to look at verses 18 and 19, and there's some translation difficulties. And if you get into commentaries deeply, you'll, you'll see them uh, making arguments about how these verses should be translated. At what point is he describing God's blessings to his people? And what point is he describing God's judgments on the wicked? It's hard sometimes to separate that. But, and it's hard when it says... For example, in verse 19, with whom there is no change. You see that phrase? Some, in, some believe that that is a reference to God, in whom there is no a shadow of turning. Uh, James 1 and uh, verse 16 and 17, or uh, Malachi 3 verse 6. Some think that's a reference to the wicked and their refusal to repent, that they don't change. But, but, but certainly he's talking about the wicked when he says in verse 19 that they do not fear God. Now again, it has been consistent throughout these Psalms to see this kind of picture of people who have no fear of God. Look at Psalm 52 verse 7. Psalm 52 verse 7. Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his wealth. He would not make God his refuge. Psalm 53 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In verse 4, we've already seen that he did not call upon God. And in Psalm 54, Psalm 54 verse 3, Strangers have risen against me, violent men have sought my life, and they have not set God before them. So, <coughs> so it's been consistent throughout this section of Psalms for these people not to treat God with the proper respect. In verses 20 and 21, he seems to revert to his familiar friend in verses 12 through 14 who had betrayed him. In verse 20, he has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He's violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. The Bible talks about the speech of the harlot in Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5, verses 3 and 4. And the Bible says, The lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. That could be true of the adulteress, that could be true of the friend who breaks his covenant with us. His speech is smoother than oil. His words are softer than oil. Uh, his, his, his speech is softer than <clears throat> well, butter and oil are the two points in comparison. <laughs> Forgive me. But all the time, his words are drawn swords. 
there is no more powerful weapon that we use to bless someone else or to damage someone else than our words. And you see it all the time in the book of Psalms. Look at Psalm 57 verse 4. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe for fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. You see it also in Psalm 59 and verse 7. Psalm 59 verse 7. Behold they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. And they say, who hears? And then Psalm 64, verses 3 and 4. Who have sharpened their tongue like a sword and aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. But here, it's someone whose words don't seem like they're swords. But all the time their heart is at war. Verse 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. The word which is used here for sustain is a word used by Joseph in talking to his brothers in Genesis 45 verse 11 where he says, I will provide for you these five years of famine. God will provide for us. God will sustain us. Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken. It is powerful sometimes to me to see the word plays in these psalms. If you go back to verse 3, Verse 3, because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me. But there in 55, verse 3, they bring down trouble. But the word that is used here, the root word that is used here to bring down trouble is the same word that is translated shaken in 55.22. The whole purpose of the wicked is to shake him, to bring him down. But the text says here, he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Psalm 15, Psalm 15 and verse 5. The Bible says, He who does not put out his money at interest nor take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things will never be shaken. In 16 and verse 8, 16 and verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. 
Uh, it's used in other places, but Psalm 121 and verse 5, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Uh, he will not, he will, the sun will not smite by day nor the moon by night. Um, okay. Verse 3. It's verse 3, yes. He will not allow your foot to slip. He will not allow you to be shaken. Psalm 121, verse 3, I think, is that same word. But the point is, all throughout, God is pictured as not letting the righteous be shaken. But you, O God, again, God, the personal pronoun is used for the address to God in verse 23, Psalm 55, verse 23. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction, men of Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. I will trust in you. And not to be uh, redundant here, but the I is there's a separate personal pronoun. Just like in verse 16, I shall call upon God, I will trust in you. Whatever happens, that is his resolve. Now, the word bring down... In 55 and verse 23, God will bring down. It is the same word that is used in 55 and verse 16, uh, or excuse me, 55 verse 15, translated go down. That it is the same word. He's asking God to do this in verse 15. And in verse 23, he is confident that God will do this, that God will bring down the wicked to the pit of destruction. Okay. Now, writing all over the board, as usual, and hard sometimes maybe to follow, but any question about the text of Psalm 55 at this point? I was wondering, Tom, going back up to verse 19 there where it talked about because they have no changes, therefore they fear not God. I was just wondering, we have a tendency to always think that God's in the picture when we're reading through the Old Testament because he's mentioned so often, but in reality there are many, many years that go on between his showing himself or, or offering his word. I'm kind of thinking about, like in the New Testament, after Jesus was arisen, there was a lot of talk of his coming back, but then Paul mentioned about something in First Thessalonians about people saying, well, where is he? He's not coming back. Everything's continued on as the same, so they they kind of lost fear. Second yeah. Peter 3, uh, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things have continued as they were. But, but sometimes because there is a gap between promise and fulfillment, we begin to doubt whether it will come true. And I think what you're emphasizing, Gary, is that God's promises will come true in time. It is in that context also where God says that time doesn't affect His promises. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years is a day, which, by the way, is a quote from the Psalms. Uh, reasons why you need to be at Tuesday night class on the Psalm class. <laughs> but but, but uh, Psalm 90 does that. But... Um, so, but time doesn't affect his promises, is the point. Yes? 
Uh, at the end of verse 21, it, it talks about the swords coming out of their mouth. That reminded me of the language in Revelation where it describes the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. Mm-hmm. And we have other verses that talk about um, okay. his word being uh, similar to a sword. It, it's an interesting yes. difference there because that's always yeah. a good thing. That's him executing justice and, and such. Yeah. Whereas this is used in a negative sense, a sword being more destructive. And a weapon to destroy, yes. That is a good point, though, that there is a positive use of that. And, of course, the, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, I remember one time I was flying from Nashville to Tampa. I had uh, We were living in Tampa and flown to Nashville to do a funeral and was coming back. And, and I just basically flew in that morning and flew out that night. And, and just had a Bible. And uh, the TSA agent says, Oh, you've got your sword. And I thought, if I had said that, I'd get arrested. <laughs> but, but, but I said, Yeah, you know, I have it. You know, so, uh, but yes, it can be used in a positive way. can be used in a positive way. Now, what we always do, what we've always done with the Psalms, is after we look at the Psalms, we say, how are we informed about Jesus in light of this psalm? Because Psalms is not the longest book of the Old Testament in the number of words, but it is the book of the Old Testament most frequently quoted in the New Testament. And because of that, we, we want to see how does this psalm, what are some things that we look at here and we say... That sounds like that sounds like Christ. And you may want to build up to the most obvious ones. I tell you what, uh, what he has to say there in verses four, uh, maybe down even through eight, that the sentiment there does make me think of Jesus' prayer in the garden. Yes, it does. But he did. It does. He says, he says here, it says, My heart is in anguish in 55 4. But in 55 2 and 4, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, uses a word here that is generally translated troubled. And it is a word to refer to Jesus. In John 12, 27 and John 13, 21, both of these, both of these, um, in light of the cross, in uh, John 12, John 12, verse 27, if somebody beats me there, they can feel free to read it. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Okay. In 13, 21, read that, John. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Okay. So, Jesus knew the feeling of the psalmist. He knew the feeling of the psalmist when he says, My, my heart is in anguish within me and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. 
He enters into the depth of our pain. You think about this psalm. This psalm is a very emotional psalm, particularly those verses 4 through 8. And yet the fact, the same words that are used of the psalmist can be used of Jesus is striking to me. And also that statement, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, that I would fly away and be at rest. I want to tell you a passage that to my knowledge I've never heard read at the Lord's table that I have always thought this is a powerful passage. Listen to this. I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now what I just read was Luke uh, Luke 12 verses 49 and 50. Luke 12 verses 49 and 50. I have come to kindle a fire on earth I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to undergo and I am distressed until it is accomplished. If anyone ever had or ever could have desired wings to fly away, it was him. And if anyone has ever been in that position innocently it was him and so and yet at the same time look at verse 2 give heed to me and answer me the word translated answer in the Greek translation is a word for here 52 55 2 this word for here is a Greek word that is used in Hebrews 5 and verse 7 when Jesus offered up strong crying and tears and was heard. And I take that, that that is this reference to Gethsemane. His spirit is troubled. He wished it was already accomplished. And the text, but the text emphasizes God heard his prayer. God heard his prayer. Now, a couple of other things before we get maybe to the focal point. Verse 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. Seems to be quoted in 1 Peter 5 verse 7. In 1 Peter 5 verse 7, the recipients of that letter, I will tell you, were troubled and distressed and I'm sure they wish they could get away. Cast your cares, cast your burden upon the Lord. Just as Psalm 55 verse 22 calls us to do. But one of the things that this psalm does, just like so many of these psalms, this psalm calls us to remember that the Lord will ultimately make a distinction between the righteous 
and the wicked. That the path of righteousness is the path of blessing. And the path of wickedness is the path of destruction. In verse 23, But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed will not live out half of their days. Now it's not so much a vocabulary link but this is a link in concept. In Revelation chapter 19, Revelation 19 verse 20, and before Dennis called attention to the sword from Jesus' mouth, which is also in Revelation 19, but in Revelation 19 verse 20, the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. God will bring down the wicked to the pit of destruction. Isn't that what he's doing? In Revelation 19 and verse 20, He's bringing down the wicked to the pit of destruction. What the Bible tells us God will do here in Psalm 55, 23 is what God is pictured as doing at the end of the Bible. And verse 21 of Revelation 19, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the earth. Yes. Yes, that's right. It just keeps that thought going of judgment, judgment upon the wicked. Uh, exactly. Um, so, and we could probably pick out something from every verse of Psalm 55 uh, that Jesus fulfills in some way. But particularly striking to me is this description of of the familiar friend in verses 12 through 14 and verses 20 and 21. The friend who betrayed him. Now, um, recently I was involved in a disagreement, a nice disagreement uh, on um, Facebook. It can happen um, occasionally. But it should have when you consider the subject matter and the people that were involved in it. It It was a discussion about the New Testament using the Old Testament. And one was arguing as I heard sometimes growing up, we can't use a New Testament passage. We can't, we can't use an Old Testament passage as fulfilled in the New Testament that isn't specifically quoted in the New Testament. Now, there's a certain logic to that. And I don't want us just to, to fly you know, free and easy with our interpretation, interpretive methods. We do look at the New Testament and we see how it uses the Old Testament, but we, I think through that we can see how we can use Old Testament passages even ones that are not specifically quoted. Yeah, I'm going to illustrate that in just a second. But Have you ever heard Daniel 2 
Nebuchadnezzar's statue and the head of gold and the arms of silver and the belly and thigh of bronze and the legs of, of, um, of iron and the feet of clay. You ever heard that in reference to the kingdom and the Messiah? Have you ever heard that? That what? Where's that quote in the New Testament? It's not. I'm not saying it's a misuse of the passage. I think it's a right use of the passage. But if you're going to say we can't use an Old Testament passage that's fulfilled in the New, you can't use Daniel 2. You can't use Isaiah 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord will be established at the top of the mountain and all nations will flow into it and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's not quoted in the New Testament. I, I, I don't think sometimes people understand the implications of their statement. Um, but why could we use this picture of a friend who betrays another to talk about the experiences of Jesus. Am I just shooting from the hip saying that? Or is there some solid foundation for that? Well, we've seen it in the Psalms, haven't we? Look at Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, verse 9 says, it says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Okay? Psalm 41, 9. I'm going to need a little bit more of the board right now. Psalm 41, 9. Where is that quoted in the New Testament? John 13. Yes. Psalm 41, 9 is quoted in John 13, verse 18, and specifically applied to Judas. That's applied to Judas. I know that Psalm 41 is talking about more than Jesus and Judas. I know that that is not the intent... The, first reference of that psalm. I can know that because Psalm 41 verse 4 says, As for me, O Lord, be gracious to me and heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Jesus could not have said those words. This is David pouring out his heart about betrayal from the hands of a close friend, from the hands, I believe, probably of Ahithophel. He's pouring out his heart and his grief about that. But David's experiences at the hand of Ahithophel foreshadow the experiences of the ultimate innocent sufferer, Jesus, at the hands of Judas. Now, you might say we can't apply every word of Psalm 55 and verse 12 through 14 to Judas because Judas wasn't a man my equal. Now I grant that. That's right. I agree with that. But can we apply every word of Psalm 41.9 to Judas? Because it says, even my close friend whom I trusted. 
What does John 6, verses 69 through 71, tell us about Jesus and his relationship with Judas? He knew from the beginning who would betray him. He said, Have I not chosen you, twelve, and one of you is a devil? Jesus knew that. So Jesus didn't trust him, and yet still those words are applied. So what I'm saying, when you see the use of Psalm 41, which refers to David in context, applies to Jesus' experiences at the hand of Judas, I think we can look at these passages where faithful people experienced betrayal by a close friend and find in them also echoes of Jesus. Now, it wasn't just David in Psalm 41 and Psalm 55 who experienced that kind of thing, who experienced that kind of betrayal. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 20. In Jeremiah 20, as Jeremiah is pouring out his grief, He said in verse 7, everyone mocks me. Verse 8, each time I speak, I cry aloud, I proclaim violence and destruction. Because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. For I've heard the whispering of many, terror is on every side. Denounce him, yes, let us denounce him, all my trusted friends, watching for my fall. Say, perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. Now, Jeremiah was an innocent sufferer who was mocked by all, even his trusted friends. Is it a stretch to apply what Jeremiah experienced at the hands of the nation? to what Jesus experienced at the hands of the nation? Isn't that a legitimate reading of the way these passages about innocent sufferers who have experienced betrayal are used? Isn't that consistent with the use of Psalm 41 in John 13? So, let's sum this up. If you have ever been troubled and anxious, like verses 4 and 5 describe, where you may have trouble sleeping, and you simply wish you could get away from the problem and never have to face it, Jesus experienced that. If you've known a close friend that you would have put complete confidence in, that stabbed you in the back, And tried to destroy you. Jesus knows that too. I think all of this is only the more reason for us to cast our care upon Him, knowing that He's being confident that He will hear. Knowing confident, knowing with confidence that He will bring the wicked down 
destruction. In a sense, this psalm, as all these psalms we've been studying, tells the story of the gospel. Thank you. Um, Craig, would you lead us in prayer? Do we have a psalm, John? Uh, we have the first 15 verses of okay. the psalm in okay. the song. Okay. Uh, recently, by the way, I've just seen it advertised this week. Matt uh, Basford did finish his Psalms book, uh, Psalms uh, songbook. So we are thankful for that. And uh, Craig, would you lead us in prayer?